be seated. Amen. Well, we're beginning a study of a new book, uh, the book of Philippians. So if you're visiting here with us today, we're so glad you're here, and we hope that you'll come back uh, this fall through this series. We'll, we'll be in this series this fall. Uh, we may even bleed over a little bit just early into January, but um, God has already used this book in my life, and I pray that He will, will use it in your lives as well. We're going to introduce the book this morning here in a little bit. You'll have to wait a little while till we get there. We're going to give some background. But I want to read these two verses as we uh, begin here this morning. Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we come before you this day and we thank you for the written word of God that you've given to us to enlighten us, to minister to us, to show us who you are and to show us the glories of your son. Father, I pray and we commit this study of Philippians to you. We pray, Lord, that when we finish this study, we won't be the same people that we were when we started. We pray that you'll use this study to, to build us up in the most holy faith that you will illuminate our our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit so that these words on the page, Father, would become part of our lives. Use it in our families and our marriages. Use it in our individual lives. Father, use it in us corporately as a church to mold us more and more into the image of your dear Son. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. Many years ago in a school in South London, a teacher said to a class of six-year-olds, she said, I'll give you all of history, is in fact a person um, whom uh, many people consider to be God. And there was a little Irish boy, a little Scottish boy put up his hand and said, well, only a Jewish boy raised his hand and said it was Jesus Christ. And the teacher said, well, that's absolutely right. Come up here and I'll give you the $20. This is Christ. She says, I thought you'd say Moses. Little boy said, well, I thought about it, but business is business. And I like that story because Jesus is our business. Jesus is our business. He's our life. And this morning as we begin our study of the book of Philippians, we discover that Jesus was Paul's business. And he wanted Jesus to be the business of the Philippians as well. Paul's passion and his preoccupation that that comes from this book is that that passion and preoccupation was Jesus Christ. And he must be ours as well. Uh, Jesus is our business. Now, most of you here have read the book of Philippians, probably. Many of you have heard sermons on Philippians. You may have been through a sermon series on the book of Philippians. You may have been in a Bible study in the book of Philippians. And if that's true, then probably most of you here would say that you've heard that this book is about joy, that it's a book all about uh, how to be a joyful Christian. And certainly that's true in some measure because the word joy, the word rejoice, the word joy are found 16 times in 104 verses uh, in this letter. But I'm going to contend as we go through the book, I'm going to kind of make the case this morning and then we'll develop this as we go along. But I believe that joy isn't the theme of this book so much as it's the tone of the book. Um, what, I, what I would say is, and I read this somewhere, I heard someone say this years ago, that joy is kind of the background music, if you will, in the book of Philippians. It's not the focus of the book, but it's the background music. It's the, the tone of it. 
And I always thought, you know, because I'd heard so many times from people, you know, joy is what this book is about. But I think the dominating theme of this book, as I've studied it, as I've read through it time and again, is that to live is Christ. That the unifying central theme of the book of Philippians is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians is about Christ, and it's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll, we'll develop this as we go along, but right at the beginning, he says that these people are in Christ. Uh, next week, we're going to see that our fellowship is founded in Christ. Uh, Paul in chapter 1 is going to say even people that are preaching the gospel from bad motives, Paul rejoices that Christ is preached. In chapter 1 and verse 21, Paul says, to me, to live is Christ. In chapter 2, he gives this beautiful example of the self, selfless sacrifice and humility of Jesus for us to follow. In chapter 3, he's combating some false teaching there, and he tells us that salvation is only found through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. At the end of chapter 3, he says that our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for Christ to come back. In chapter 4, verse 13, it says we can do all things through Christ. So the focus of Philippians is that Jesus Christ is our life that he is to be the consuming passion and preoccupation in the life of every believer. Paul's purpose in writing this book was that they might know Christ and rejoice in Christ and want Christ and be like Christ and rest in Christ and serve Christ and suffer for Christ and wait for Christ. That's what this book is all about. And if you're a person who's focused on Jesus Christ and his gospel, then you'll be a joyful person. So that's the background music, I think, of uh, this letter. So Jesus is our business. He's what we're all about. He is our life, and it's all about Him. That's the message of Philippians. Now, what I want to do this morning is open this letter and kind of get our bearings and a little bit of the background, and then we'll, we'll look at the first couple of verses here uh, to set us up to begin um, in verse 3 next time. Now, what I want to do again is open the letter, and for those of you that were with us in Philippi back in June, uh, this will hopefully look familiar to you, I'm trying to create envy and jealousy in the rest of you who weren't there. So uh, this is a picture of the, the, uh, the marketplace there, the Agora, as we open this letter. And uh, I've got three simple points this morning to kind of take us through this, the setting of this letter, a little background, uh, then the synopsis. I just want to kind of give a little brief overview, and then the salutation. Or the, we'll look at these first two verses together. Um, let's look a little bit at the city of Philippi and then the church. So the city, what was happening there, and then the church and how it was founded. Uh, the city of Philippi, again, uh, many of us were there back in uh, June. It's a beautiful setting. It's about nine miles inland from the Aegean Sea. And uh, Philip of Macedonia is the one who founded the city. Um, he's called Philip II or Philip B. Um, he was the father of Alexander the Great. Many consider him to be the greatest man that Europe ever produced because really it was all of his work that paved the way for his son to really go and conquer the world all the way uh, past India and into China. Uh, but Philip of, of Macedon, he kind of brought the, the Greek people together, but there was a city up in the northern area of Greece that was kind of an outpost there, but it was very, very rich in gold. And Philip wanted that city, and so he went and took it, and after he took that city, in 356 B.C., he named it Philippi. Now, 
That's the way it's actually pronounced. I'll say Philippi because that's what people are used to hearing, but actually it's Philippi. If you say Philippi, people don't know what you're talking about. So we'll keep saying Philippi. But this, he named it Philippi after himself because he wanted the gold that was there, and the gold there was in an area called Mount Pangaean. When you're standing there in, uh, in Philippi, you see Mount Pangaean in the distance, one of the richest areas in gold ever in human history. And Philip II knew the golden rule of the world, which is he who has the gold makes the rules. And uh, so he wanted that battle. He took that area and became greatly enriched. And it's a lot of those resources, again, that were used by his son, Alexander the Great, to raise his army and all of that uh, to conquer the world. And, of course, this city then later became a Roman city when the Romans displaced the Greeks as the great world power of that day. There, there are three times in history that Philippi, the city of Philippi, changed the course of history. One of them was in 356 when uh, Philip comes there and takes this city and gathers this, uh, gets his hands on all these riches that are able to be used for, by his son, Alexander the Great. Um, another important event in 42 BC, uh, that was where the Battle of Philippi happened, one of the great battles in ancient history. You remember that Cassius and Brutus had conspired and killed uh, Julius Caesar. And they had fled, and they finally, got, they finally got trapped here at Philippi by Octavian and Mark Antony. Of course, Octavian later became Caesar Augustus. And Octavian and, and uh, Mark Antony defeated Brutus and Cassius there. And so this was always an important part of Roman history, the Battle of Philippi. And then, of course, the third time the city of Philippi changed the history of the world was in A.D. 50 when Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke go there and found the first church on European soil there in the city of Philippi. So it's an important city historically and certainly a very important city uh, biblically. And one of the, the key things about the city is this city straddled the Via Ignatia or the Ignatian Way. Uh, one of the important roads, uh, really the, one of the two most important roads in the Roman Empire. And it's kind of interesting, back then they had road markers just like we do. It says there in Greek, Ignatia Odos, or the Ignatia Road, and then below that in Latin is the Via Ignatia. Um, this, this highway... Uh, this road in that day was uh, basically the I-40 of the ancient world, if you will. And because of that, the city of Philippi grew and probably in Paul's day had a population of about 10,000 uh, people or so. Uh, this is a picture, kind of dark, but you can see the Via Ignatia down here in the shadows and the city of Philippi is back there. So this is heading toward it. It's, it's the road that, that Paul and Luke and... and uh, Timothy and Silas would have walked along. And like all the Roman roads of that day, it's 19 feet, 6 inches wide. I mean, they had this down to a, to a science building uh, these roads at that time. Um, the Via Ignatia was 700 miles long. I mean, it went all the way from over uh, where modern uh, um, Istanbul is, all the way over to the west coast of Greece. And then you went across the Adriatic Sea, and you got the Appian Way, and then that took you right to Rome. Uh, the Roman road system covered 54,000 miles. Think about that. 54,000 miles of Roman roads uh, built in that. It's an amazing engineering feat, really, that they were able uh, to accomplish. Uh, one other thing, uh, here's another picture of the Via Ignatia. You just can see it a little more clearly. And so this city of Philippi was there. And you can, you can stand there and see where the Via Ignatia went right through the city of Philippi today. And again, that's where these men would have walked through, through the city there. Um, one other thing about the city that's interesting is this city was a Roman colony. 
In Acts chapter 16, verse 12, in fact, if you want to go ahead and turn over to Acts, we're going to be there in just a moment. Uh, Acts 16, verse 12, says it was a Roman colony, and that was a great privilege in that day and a great status. The best thing about being a Roman colony was no taxes. So you can imagine how great it was to be a Roman colony, or at least, uh, at least greatly reduced taxes. Um, also, we know that Philippi, being a Roman colony, a lot of former uh, GIs lived there. So it was a kind of a, a city where a lot of uh, veterans lived. It was a military town filled with many military veterans there. And it's interesting, when you read through the book of Philippians, he calls Epaphroditus, Paul does, my fellow soldier. Um, he, he talks about in, uh, in uh, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. So he uses local imagery of soldiers and citizenship and those kinds of things uh, to help these people understand the truths that he's teaching. Now, that's a little bit here about the city, about this city of Philippi. Now, what about the church there? How did the Philippian church uh, begin? Well, the founding of the church is recorded for us in Acts chapter 16, and that is Paul's second missionary journey. Now, what we read in Acts 16 is that Paul and um, his friends were traveling through where they'd been on the first missionary journey, kind of retracing their steps in the area of, of central modern-day Turkey. And they wanted to go uh, down south to Asia, and it says in the text that the Holy Spirit uh, for, forbade them to go there. And then they wanted to go up north to B Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Now, we don't know what the Lord used to make it clear to Paul and his friends that they weren't to go there, but they weren't permitted to go south or north. The Holy Spirit uh, funneled them west to the city of Troas, right here on the, the western coast of modern-day Turkey. And it's there in Acts 16, we read that Paul has a vision from a man of Macedonia. And in this vision, the man says, come over here uh, to Europe and help us. And so Paul and, and Luke and Silas and Timothy leave Troas and they sail across the Aegean to the city of uh, Neapolis. And it's beautiful here in the, in the passage for me to, to read through this again because um, it says in uh, verse 11 of chapter 16, therefore putting out the sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace or Samothrace. And we were on our journeys of Paul trip on our ship. We went by the island of, of Samothrace. And on the following day, he says, we arrived at Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, about nine more miles inland, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, we're staying in this city for some days. And Paul goes on to talk about how uh, he looked for a, a synagogue there. And Paul always went to the Jew first, and there was no synagogue in the city of Philippi. It only took 10 men as a quorum to have a synagogue, so they didn't even have that in Philippi. So he goes out to uh, the river nearby outside the wall of the city, the Gangetus River, and he finds some women gathered together there, uh, kind of like uh, maybe a, a Tuesday morning uh, bi women's Bible study or something like that. And Paul finds some women there, and among them is a woman named Lydia. And it says that she is someone who was a worshiper of God, a God-fearer. She'd rejected paganism and polytheism. She believed there was one God, but she was trying to discover what it meant to serve that God and to live a God-fearing life. So she's a seeker. And I love this passage where it says in verse 14, 
And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. God opened her heart, and it's, it's God who's opened the heart of every person who's ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. And God is still in the heart-opening business today as well. When the gospel is preached, God comes and opens the hearts of people to receive that message and to trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the first convert uh, on European soil. And so we have three events here that found the church at at, uh, Philippi, the conversion of Lydia, uh, the deliverance of a slave girl. We looked at that last time. Now, it never says in the passage the slave girl came a, became a believer, but most people think that through her deliverance of, from this demon possession uh, that she put her faith in. Thrown into jail there. And as they're thrown into jail, of course, they're praying. God sends an earthquake about midnight. Uh, the house shakes there. Uh, the jailer believes he's going to probably be killed because of these prisoners escaping And he falls down before Paul and Silas, one of the great statements in all the Bible, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household. Now this is the area down by the Gangetus River, probably where Lydia and her friends were, probably where they were baptized there. It's a beautiful little river. We had a wonderful communion service there uh, together, all all of our group. Um, this is something not really related, but this is the judgment seat or the Bema seat where Paul was, uh, brought, that Paul was brought before according to Acts 16. Again, Paul stood right in front of this area where he was, where he was uh, judged there, he and Silas. Uh, this is the jail here, the jailhouse rock. Is there? I've got some guy's calves in this picture there, so some unnamed person. But this is where the Philippian jail was, and this is kind of the inner area of that jail where Paul and Silas were. So it's a, a powerful background here of this. I, I love what uh, John Chrysostom, the great father back in the church, said about the Philippian jailer. It says, he washed their stripes, but God washed his sins. Philippian jailer brought Paul and Silas to his home and washed away uh, the blood from their, their wounds they have, but God washed away his sins through faith in Jesus. Now we go on and read in this passage that Lydia, who was wealthy, made her house available to be a house church. Notice uh, down in verse 40. And they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and they departed. Now, one thing you'll notice, if you go back and look at the beginning of Acts 16, like in verse 10, notice he says, when when he had seen the vision, we sought to go to Macedonia. So when you see the word we in the book of Acts, that includes Luke. But notice down in verse 40, and they departed. So Luke stayed behind in Philippi. And some people have surmised that Philippi was Luke's hometown. We don't know that for sure, but it could be. But he stays behind. The other three men uh, then go on ahead. And what Paul and these men leave behind in Philippi are the beginnings of a church. The nucleus of the Philippian church is a Jewish businesswoman a formerly demon-possessed slave girl, and a blue-collar ex-GI, probably, who's the jailer uh, there at Philippi. So a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. And if you know anything about uh, Judaism, Jewish men back in that day used to pray often and thank God that they weren't a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And that's what God used to start the church. A woman, a slave, 
and a Gentile. By, by the world's standards, not something that was very impressive. But we see here the unique, uniting, reconciling power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, our country could use a bit of today. So the gospel and, and relationship with Christ supersedes social class, race, financial status, education, whatever it may be. A church here is born uh, with these three people and probably their families as well. And of course, Paul and Silas then are run out of town and they head on down the Via Ignatia to the next city, to the city of, of Thessaloniki. Now, we'll fill in some more of the gaps over the next few weeks as we go through this book, but what I want to do now is turn to uh, the synopsis of this book, if you will. So, in your mind now, fast forward with me 12 years, okay? Paul's founded the church in A.D. 50, and he's left town. Now, it's 12 years in the future. It's A.D. 62, and a man named Epaphroditus is sent from Philippi over to where Paul is. Paul's now under house arrest in Rome. And they send a man named Epaphroditus from Philippi to come over to Rome to visit Paul there to find out how he's doing and to bring Paul some money, a financial gift from the Philippians. Because Paul is under house arrest. Acts 28 says he's living in his own rented quarters there. He's under a guard, but he's in this rented quarters. So they bring him some money. And so what we're going to see then in the book of Philippians as we go through it in subsequent weeks is this letter in chapter 1 is an update for the Philippians of what's been going on in Paul's life. They, they want to know they love him. They want to know what's been happening. So he updates them. Um, it's also a thank you note, this letter is, for their financial support. Paul is sending them a thank you note for the gifts they have given him financially. They, they supported him more than any other church. It's also a call to unity. Evidently, and we'll see this in a few weeks, there were some, some fractures in the fellowship that had begun to develop. And Paul writes to, to call them to, to great unity. Also in chapter 3, there was some false teaching there that had crept into the church, as often happened back at that time through Paul's ministry. When he would come, these false teachers would come in. And uh, so he writes to straighten that out. And then in uh, the last chapter, we're going to see that Paul calls these believers to be stable and to be content in the circumstances uh, they're in. Now, let me just give kind of a quick summary of the book. Uh, the, the first thing we see, this, this letter was a prison letter. Uh, three times in the first chapter, Paul refers to his refers to Caesar's household. So again, it's written in A.D. 62 from Rome while Paul is under house arrest. And you can read about that house arrest there at the end of, of Acts 28. This is Paul's first Roman imprisonment. And again, he's not down in a deep, dark dungeon somewhere. He's under house arrest, free to have people come and see him and leave, but he himself is confined there in this rented house. And again, uh, this letter would have been taken back by Epaphroditus, the guy who'd come from Philippi. The letter was sent back with him uh, back, to, uh, back to the Philippians. Uh, by the way, one thing I think that's beautiful about this letter, you know, Paul's writing this letter from prison. He's not writing it from the four seasons in Rome. And Nero's on the throne. And Paul, we, we know from other writings of his that he wanted to be in Spain. But he, but he willingly submitted himself to the will of God and makes the best of where he is. And there may be some of you who are here this morning in whatever place you're in in your life, you'd like to be somewhere else. You've had a lot of plans and maybe some of those plans have been, been scuttled. Things aren't turning out the way you wanted them to. And I would encourage you to be like Paul. 
and submit to the will of God and make the best and stay Christ-centered and Christ-focused wherever you are and make the best of that. That's what we need to do in our lives. Paul here in prison, we're going to see in a couple of weeks, is greatly used by God. It's part of God's plan for his life. And so if you're not where you want to be in your life, allow God to use you where you are now. Another thing about this letter, it's a popular letter. As we go through it, you're going to see that a lot of your favorite verses are in this book. Uh, Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it till the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, chapter 1, verse 21, to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Uh, that great passage in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 of the, the, the emptying, the self-emptying of Christ. Let this attitude or this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus and so on. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, don't be anxious or worry about anything. But in all things, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Uh, Philippians 4.8, whatever things are true, whatever things are honorable, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, if there's anything of goodness, anything of excellence, let your mind dwell on these things. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4, uh, 19, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So this is a, a popular book filled with all kind of, of verses that people love, uh, many favorite verses. So it's a popular letter. Um, it's a very personal letter. Uh, this book is a, is a thank you note from Paul to the Philippians. There are over 100 personal pronouns in 104 verses. In fact, Paul uses the word I 52 times. It's not because he's focused on himself, but it's because he's updating them and telling them things that are happening in his life. So a very intimate, very cordial letter. Um, it's a positive letter. Again, joy or rejoice 16 times in the 104 verses. So it's a very positive letter. It's the, it's the background music here of the letter uh, to the Philippians. I love what G.B. Caird said years ago. He said, the Philippians gave Paul the most help and the least trouble. And wouldn't it be great to be a church like that, that we give the most help and the least trouble uh, to the Lord and to our leadership? Uh, notice this letter is also a very practical uh, letter as well. Um, we're going to talk about all kinds of wonderful practical truths. Fellowship, the Gospels mentioned nine times. How good results can come from bad circumstances. Life and death, a unity, and how we selflessly sacrifice uh, to maintain unity in our homes and the church. Salvation and sanctification. Uh, the coming of Christ is mentioned six times in this book. We're going to talk about how to be spiritually stable in chapter 4. We're going to talk about uh, how to be uh, content in our lives. So God is going to use this, this book in our lives, I believe, to build us up spiritually in many areas. And then the final thing, just kind of by way of this summary or synopsis, this letter is what I call a permeated letter. 104 verses in Philippians, Jesus is mentioned 93 times. Christ, 38 times. Jesus, 22 times. Lord, 15 times. Savior, one time. And 17 times you have personal pronouns related to Jesus. You can see, as someone has described this book, it is a Christ-intoxicated letter. And I love that because that's the unifying theme of this book. It's the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, 
that's kind of a quick overview of the book. And by the way, these, this PowerPoint is going to be online uh, with the, the, the sermon notes. So if you want to go back and look through this PowerPoint or if you want to use it or whatever, feel free to do so. But with that background in mind, let's get into the salutation of our letter now. Just look at these first couple of verses, a few things here, and uh, then we'll be dismissed. The first, we see three things here. We see the servants, we see the saints, we see the shepherds. Notice he says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Uh, these are the servants or the senders of this letter. And I love this because Paul describes himself and Timothy as bondservants of Christ. The, the word here, many of you know this word, it's the word doulos. It's used of a slave or a servant in that day. <clears throat> but it was a person who was at the disposal of another person. And I love this because Paul and Timothy, he says, we are completely at the disposal of Jesus Christ to do what he desires for us to do. Paul and Timothy, their entire lives are in the service of Jesus Christ. And so we see here again in this letter a focus on Jesus from the outset. And one of the things I love here about this, by the way, as well, you notice that there was no celebrity status for Paul and Timothy. They considered themselves slaves or bondservants of Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes in the church today, there's too much celebrity status uh, for many people. We're bondservants of Jesus Christ. Those are the senders or those are the, the, the servants. Now, notice the next thing here is the saints. The senders are Paul and Timothy. The receivers here are the saints. To all the saints in Christ Jesus now, isn't it interesting here, the leaders are the servants and the followers are the saints. That's the opposite of what we would expect. In fact, David Jeremiah says this. He says, if we had designed the structure of this, the leaders would be the saints and the followers would be the servants. But where there is community, however, the leaders are the servants and the followers are the saints. Now, the leaders were saints too, but he puts the emphasis here on the fact that these believers there are saints. Now, the word saints is Paul's favorite word for believers. The word we often use for ourselves is believers or Christians. But did you know the word Christian is only found in the New Testament three times? The word saints is found over 60 times. And the word saint means to be set apart. Most of you know that. It means to be set apart. And I think what it means is when we come to Jesus Christ and put faith in Him, we are set apart from sin, from our old way of life, and now we are set apart unto God as belonging to Him. And if you look in verse 1, he calls them saints. And in chapter 4, verse 21 and verse 22, the, the, the second to the last and third to the last verse, you'll see the same word used there as well. So it's kind of like calling them saints here. It's kind of bookends uh, for this letter. Now, we use this word in two main ways in our culture. Uh, someone who's really lived a good life will say about someone, you know, my dear mother, you know, she was a real saint, kind of just in a kind of a more of a, a casual or a cultural way. It's also used of kind of an elite group of people that have actually been, you know, canonized by the church and declared to be saints, and uh, that some people believe they're to pray to them or appeal to them or so on. In fact, in the Roman Catholic Church, they have a multi-phase. In fact, it's a, a six-step process for becoming a saint. And two miracles have to be attributed to the person uh, for them to become a saint. Uh, some of you may be following the articles in the paper. In fact, there's one in there this morning. 
Um, it's a, a whole uh, series and it called The Road to Sainthood. There's a, a man who grew up here in Oklahoma named uh, Reverend Stanley Rother, and um, he's the, the first U.S.-born male and U.S. priest named a martyr by the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, his beatification ceremony is planned for September 23rd in Oklahoma City, which will place him one step closer to the final step, canonization, when he declared to be a saint. And they're building uh, a shrine to him down in uh, uh, southwest Oklahoma City at Southwest 89th and Shields. And so there have been several articles in the paper about this. And by the way, what I'm saying this morning is not to denigrate anything from him. This man was a martyr. And uh, certainly I'm not saying anything to denigrate what he's done. But I just find it interesting as I was reading through all of this, the Bible has one step to become a saint, trust in Christ. That's it. You go back to the church at Philippi, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. She believed the message. What did they tell the Philippian jailer? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And Paul's writing to these believers here and he's telling them all, you are saints. So the way you become a saint is to recognize you're not a saint and you need a Savior. That's what it is. It's a one-step process to trust in Jesus. And if you've never done that this morning, I want to give you the opportunity to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, to believe in Him, to become a saint. The, the second you trust in Jesus, God will set you apart as belonging to Him, and you will be a saint in Christ Jesus. So God will open our hearts, I pray. Open your heart to believe that. I remember J. Vernon McGee years ago. I used to always list him on the radio, through the Bible radio. And when he'd come to passages like this, he'd always make it clear. He says, there's two kind of people. There's saints and there's ain'ts. And I like that. You're either a saint or you ain't, right? You've either trusted Christ or you haven't trusted in Christ. One other story I like, H.A. Uh, Ironside was a great Bible teacher. I appreciated his ministry so much. And he was uh, ministering back before airplane travel was very common. And he used to spend a lot of hours traveling on trains. And one time he was on a four-day trip from the West Coast to, back to Chicago. And um, he found himself in the company of a group of nuns. And he began to talk to them. And they really liked his Bible knowledge and enjoyed talking to him. So they would get together every day and talk about the Bible for a little while. And one day um, he began the discussion by asking these nuns if they'd ever seen a saint before. And all of them said, well, no, we've never met a saint. And he said, well, would you like to meet one? And they said, well, we'd love to meet one. And he said, well, here I am. He says, I'm St. Harry. And um, they were all shocked at what he said, but he took them to the Bible to passages like the one we're in this morning to show them that every Christian, every believer in Jesus Christ is a saint. And so this, this word deals with our status or our position. But what we are positionally as saints is to be worked out in our lives practically. So positionally, that's our position. We're saints. We're set apart to God. But what we are in position is to also be lived out in our practice so that our lives conform uh, to that position. We look like saints in the way we live. A little boy uh, used to attend a church where there was all kinds of stained glass windows, St. Matthew, St. Mark, St. Luke, St. John, St. Paul, these beautiful stained glass windows in the church. And one day he was asked in Sunday school, what is a saint? And he said, a saint is a person the light shines through. And I like that. Being a saint is someone that the light of Jesus Christ shines through. So being a saint is a position, but it's to result in the practice of living uh, for Jesus Christ and living set apart from sin. What we are positionally, 
It's to be lived out practically. So every believer has two addresses. Notice he says, your saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Every one of us here this morning has a physical location. We are in Edmond, but spiritually we are in Christ. And we're to allow our spiritual location or our spiritual address to affect how we live at our physical address. We're not allowed the physical address in Edmond to dominate our lives. We're to allow the in Christ to dominate how we live in Edmond. So think about that in your life. You have a, a physical address. You're in Edmond, but we're in Christ Jesus. And what we live and what we do in Him is to affect how we live in this physical address. So those are the servants, the saints. And then the final group, here's the shepherds. He says, who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Now, these are the shepherds of the church or the, the, the guides of the church. And notice this small group of believers Paul left behind has grown into an organized church. It's 12 years have passed. And he mentions overseers and deacons. God has embedded you here at this church, if you're fellowshipping here regularly, if you're a member here, into a network of authority and a network of accountability for all of us here. And there are only two offices in the local church, and they're both listed here. The office of overseer or elder or pastor, those are synonymous terms, I think, in the New Testament, and the office of deacon. So the overseers here are the elders, and that word overseer means to, to look upon. So overseers look upon the spiritual affairs or tend to the spiritual affairs of the church. And you'll notice here the word overseers is plural. It's not the overseer or the pastor. It's, it's plurality. It's a plurality of leadership uh, in the local church. And by the way, our elders here at our church, we've got a, a new out on, in the lobby and the, the screens we have out there, we have some things that are kind of rolling there. The pic pictures of the elders are there on those for you to go. And if you want to see regularly who the elders um, of our church here at Faith Bible Church, their, their pictures are out there. Uh, they'll be in the lobby. But those are the, those, the, the men that God sets aside to lead in the church. Then he refers to the deacons. And deacons are those who assist the elders. They, they relieve the elders of lesser responsibilities so they can tend to uh, the Word of God and to prayer and to guiding the flock spiritually. And here at our church, we have deacons who oversee finances and weddings and funerals and disaster relief and the Lord's Supper and baptism and just different practical areas of our church where needs are met. But I love this little statement here. It says here in verse 1, to the saints in Philippi, literally you translate this, with the overseers and the deacons. Because we ask ourselves, how is leadership to be exercised in the church? What is the relationship between the leaders and the led? And we get it in that one little word, the word with. That the leaders and the people need to stay together and stay connected. It's the saints at Philippi with the elders and the deacons. We are to be with one another. We're to stay connected with one another and we're to stay together. Alec Motyer in his commentary on, uh, on uh, Philippians says this, this kind of leadership has many facets. It involves realizing that leader and the led share the same Christian experience. Both are sinners saved by the same precious blood, always and without distinction, wholly dependent on the same patient mercy of God. 
It involves putting first whatever creates and maintains the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It means that leaders see themselves first as members of the body and only then as ministers. In this way, they face every situation from within the local body of Christ and not as people dropped in from the outside or even above. It involves open relationships in which the leaders do not scheme to get their own way or play off against one another, but act with transparent integrity. It involves putting the welfare of the body of Christ before all personal advantage, success, or reputation. And it involves co-equal sacrifice for the Lord and His gospel. It is the leadership of those who are content to stand among the saints as those who serve. That's a beautiful statement of what leadership should be like in the church. It's the saints with the elders and with the deacons. We stand with you, connected with you, and we want to stay together with you um, in the local church. Not as those who are dropped in from above or come in from above, but those who serve uh, with the saints uh, of Jesus Christ. That's a great word for all of us here in this church to, to think about in our relationship between our elders, our pastors, and, and the flock here at Faith Bible Church. The final thing here in verse 2, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, do you notice the deity of Jesus in this verse? Grace and peace come from the same source, God the Father and the Lord Jesus. They're co-equal here. They're the ones that give grace and peace. But you notice the grace and peace here is very significant, that the sequence is significant because true grace and peace can only come from God and from Jesus Christ. But you notice you have to have experienced God's grace before you experience His peace. You can only get grace from Christ and from the Father. You can only get peace from grace uh, from God the Father and from Christ. But the sequence is significant. Peace is the fruit of grace, and there's nothing but the grace of God, that wonderful, unmerited favor of God to the unworthy uh, that can give you peace in your life. Look, there are a lot of themes and purposes intertwined in this letter to the Philippians, but the unifying aim or purpose in this letter is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. To me, to live is Christ. Jesus is our business. That's what this book is about. One final story here, and we'll close with prayer here in a moment. Uh, most of you know the name Gandhi, the great leader in, in India. He was a great admirer of Jesus. He considered the life of Jesus a beautiful example of a, of a perfect man. I mean, he was deeply impressed by Christ's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and he sought to, to follow the message of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, he uh, viewed Christ as the embodiment of sacrifice and a great example to the world, but he wouldn't go any further than that, and he remained a Hindu uh, throughout his life. Uh, when Gandhi was killed in 1948, among his few material possessions and belongings were about a dozen books. One of them was The Life and Teachings of Jesus Christ, and another one was The Gospel of John. And on his wall by his bed was a portrait of Jesus with these words, He is our peace. Well, what's interesting, Christ had found a place in kind of the circumference of the life of Gandhi but never at the center of his life. In fact, Gandhi summarized his position on Jesus like this not long before his death. I cannot concede to Christ a solitary throne. Jesus could be part of the circumference of his life, part of the periphery, but he said, I can never concede to Christ a solitary throne. And there are many, many people today like Gandhi who are willing to give Christ a place in their lives 
somewhere on the periphery or somewhere in their circumference, but not to give Christ the solitary throne in their lives. And it's my prayer that through our study of Philippians that you and I will put Jesus Christ at the center of our lives, that he won't be out there somewhere in the circumference or the periphery, that Jesus will be our business, and that we will be able to say with Paul, to me to live is Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, again, we want to come and thank you so much for our time in the Scriptures today. We thank you that you've made us saints through simple faith in our our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for our leaders here, elders, our deacons, for their sacrificial service. Father, I pray for each of them that they be with saints, with God's people, serving, sacrificing selflessly to meet needs. We thank you for the grace and the peace that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you'll take again what we've studied here this morning just to begin to work in our hearts, that each one of us would be willing to concede to Jesus Christ the solitary throne of our lives, but for us to live, be Christ. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. Well, if you'll stand with me for the benediction as uh, we are dismissed. Again, if you're a visitor, thank you so much for coming and being with us this morning. Uh, Last week at the early service, I said if you go out here and go to the right, there's a welcome center. While I was gone this summer, they changed it. It's on the left. So hopefully I didn't misguide anyone here last week. So if if you are a guest or visitor, we're so glad. Go out these doors to your left, and there's a welcome center there. Some folks who'd love to greet you and give you some more information about our church. And again, I hope you're excited about this study. And again, it's blessed me so much already. I I sense the Spirit of God at work in my own life. And and I pray that there will be some, some wonderful spillover to all of us here, that God will use this in our lives. So let's be praying for ourselves and for one another to that end. Let's bow for the benediction now as we're dismissed with God's blessing. Father, we come before you now and we, we thank you for this word that you've given to us today. We want to leave here with your blessing. So we pray that the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would go with us all. All God's people said, amen. amen.